Recorded live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 11th episode of OT Leadership Live. My name is Michael Lopez, and I will be facilitating our conversation this evening. For those of you new to OT Leadership Live, welcome. And for those of you who have participated in our past episodes, welcome back. We have a great episode planned for tonight, and I'm very excited to hear from our guest, Deborah Slater, on ethics and leadership. Before we dive into today's topic, I'd like to review some housekeeping items in order to ensure our call runs as smoothly as possible. If you're on your phone and you haven't done so already, please press mute. If you're on on your computer, please mute your microphone in order to minimize the static and feedback that can occur during the recording. Only the person currently speaking should have their device unmuted at that time. If you're on the TalkShoe website, you will notice that there's a chat room available. Please feel free to type any questions or comments throughout the episode, and we will address those along the way or at the end of the episode during the Q&A session. If you are not by a computer and are joining us via your phone, you can always live tweet with us using the hashtag OTLeadershipLive. For those of you who may have to leave early or if you know of anyone who wasn't available to participate live this evening, we are recording this episode and will be posting a link to the recording on AOTA's social media website, OT Connections on the Leadership Forum, which can be easily accessed by visiting communityofleaders.org. Before we get started, I'd like to give just a brief summary of what OT Leadership Live is all about and who is putting it on. As I mentioned earlier, my name is Michael Lopez, and for tonight's episode, we are joined by Deborah Slater to have a conversation about ethics and leadership and other topics related to organizational ethics and ethical conduct. It is my pleasure and great honor to introduce our guest. Deborah Slater has 44 years of experience in clinical and administrative positions in a broad variety of organizational settings. Her clinical specialty area is hand rehabilitation for over 25 years, but but for over 25 years, I'm sorry, she focused on management roles overseeing large single and multidisciplinary departments in both inpatient and outpatient settings. She has developed startup offsite satellite clinics for several organizations, including new program development, and has extensive experience in financial management as well as reimbursement. Deborah has been active in a variety of volunteer leadership positions for her state OT association and AOTA. Since June of 2003, she has worked for AOTA as the ethics program manager and staff liaison to the ethics commission, the special interest sections, and most recently the representative assembly. She has done numerous presentations on ethics at state and national conferences and has also published book chapters and continuing education products on this subject. Deborah is a fellow of the American Occupational Therapy Association and has received numerous service awards for various volunteer leadership positions. In 2002, she received the Herbert Hall Award for Outstanding Service to the Occupational Therapy Profession from the Massachusetts Association for Occupational Therapy. In May 2005, she received the Distinguished Alumna Award from Columbia University in New York City. Thank you, Deborah, for joining us. And again, to all of our listeners, if you haven't already, we ask that you please go ahead and mute your device and we'll get started. So, Debbie, I'd like to start tonight's episode by asking you to speak to um, a little bit about how the Ethics Commission operates and their role within AOTA. Thank you, Michael. So we have quite a bit of information about the Ethics Commission on the webpage in our practice area. Um, and you can really see who's in the Ethics Commission and what the mission and functions of the commission are about. 
we have an elected chair elected by AOTA membership, and that chair serves one year as an elect and then a three-year term, single three-year term. The chair appoints six members of the commission. We have a member at large who can be an OT or an OTA. We have a representative from practice, a representative from education, an OT assistant, and two public members. And the public members are individuals who work in healthcare, usually have quite a bit of familiarity with occupational therapy and are ethics experts, but they are not occupational therapists or occupational therapy assistants. They bring a very valuable perspective to the group. Um, everyone on the EC serves a three-year term. Many people serve two terms. They, uh, that's at the pleasure of the chair. Um, they can't serve more than two terms. The terms are staggered, so we never have a complete turnover of the Ethics Commission, which is very important because a number of our cases may span uh, over a year or over a term, so that way we have some continuity. Um, the Ethics Commission, I think people really think that it's largely about enforcement, but actually it has a dual mission, enforcement and education. Of course, the Commission develops and maintains the Code of Ethics, uh, which you're probably all familiar with. Uh, that was originally developed in 1977 and has been updated a number of times since. It's on a five-year review cycle. The most recent code, the current one that we're using now, is from 2015. Uh, they also developed the enforcement procedures, which are not on a standard review cycle. We really sort of update them when we see a gap uh, that needs to be fixed. Um, the EC, of course, adjudicates complaints filed by individuals and also complaints that are initiated by the Ethics Commission if unethical conduct comes to their attention from another source. Sometimes we get letters from state licensure boards about disciplinary action. Sometimes we get letters from attorneys general. Sometimes it's just in the public domain through a newspaper, and if it's someone who is an AOTA member or was a member at the time of the incident, then the Ethics Commission has jurisdiction. Um, the complaint and enforcement process is pr really clearly laid out with timelines in the enforcement procedures. These are also on our website. So that's one part of the Ethics Commission's uh, role. The second function is developing, interpreting, and disseminating educational materials. And that's actually what the EC spends a lot of time on. Um, we have a reference guide to the code, which we usually put out every five years after a code is updated and revised, and I edit that. And that's a wonderful compendium, not just of our ethics advisory opinions, of which we have about 26, and those are on our website as well. Uh, we also have a number of articles in, in, on different topics in the reference guide. So um, it's really a good book to have on your reference shelf. Um, I mentioned our ethics advisory opinions. We are uh, developing uh, a few new ones. We typically do at least two a year, unless it's a year that we're updating the code. Uh, we try to pick the topics based on the kinds of questions that come into our ethics mailbox or that come by phone that we think are really hot topics um, so that they're very current. And we often use those ethics advisories when we do presentations on ethics, um, at conference and at, at state and uh, state and of course the AOTA annual conference, and um, when we answer member questions, we do an everyday ethics session at annual conference every year. Uh, this year again, it's going to be 
on productivity, and Amy Lamb, our president, is going to do an introduction to it because productivity, uh, we'll probably talk about it a little bit later, is really a very hot topic for our members. We have about five ethics continuing education courses, which you can access through our, the AOTA store, through the website. Um, and this year we're doing something we have not actually done before. We are going to have a special ethics issue of OT practice, which will be coming out sometime late spring. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of educational uh, work that is done um, by the Ethics Commission. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing, Debbie. Um, and because the focus of all of our OT Leadership Live episodes is about leadership, um, broadly, how would you define leadership and ro what role do ethics play in leadership? So I would, uh, when I think about leadership, I would say it's the ability to define and operationalize a strategic plan or project, but also to create a vision. So if you're a department head or a supervisor, your employees, your staff, get on board and want to be a part of it and see it, see it, see it succeed. I think a good leader has the ability to really excite people about um, a project or an activity. Um, you want your staff to be actively engaged, and a good leader can do that. An ethical leader is always mindful of core principles and values of the profession, uh, in our case, and has them as the focus of any activity, project, or plan. I think an ethical leader never puts staff or employees in a position where they're directed to do things that are counter to our ethical principles. Um, and a good leader is not punitive if employees raise ethical concerns. Thank you, Debbie. Um, and now I'd like to dive into a more specific topic related to leadership um, in the 21st century, specifically social media. Um, with the rapid evolution of the Internet and technology in general, um, you know, could you share some of the ethical implications of social media or perhaps any um, you know, cases you've heard about um, from, from members? Actually, um, we have a relatively recent and recently updated ethics advisory on related to social media and social networking. Uh, and we also, when we revised the code in 2015, put some language in specific to this topic because it is becoming um, more of an ethical problem. Uh, social media, I think people think it promotes relationships. However, it can be very tricky for healthcare professionals who need to clearly separate personal from professional. Um, there is no expectation of privacy on social media, so anything that's posted can uh, not only be read by colleagues, but keep in mind it can also um, be read by patients, and the reverse is true. Therapists may see things posted by patients on social media that are of concern, and then they're in a situation where they have to decide if they have an ethical obligation to share that information with team members. So it really goes both ways. Um, sometimes it's too much information. Um, language and pictures on social media can be viewed by employers and it has resulted in termination or decisions not to hire. So that's another um, thing to think about if you are looking for a job or a new grad, something like that. Confidentiality is obviously an issue and a potential HIPAA violation. 
um, people think of that I don't put someone's name, a patient's name there, or identifying information, I'm fine. But um, it's definitely true that people have recognized individuals even without that identifying information. So you have to be conscious of um, some of the regulatory um, uh, rules that um, relate to uh, patient information. Um, also, clients can jeopardize professional boundaries because this becomes um, a dual relationship. Uh, if you, well, what I wanted to say is information shared by healthcare providers on public sites through online friendships with clients can jeopardize uh, professional boundaries because now it becomes like a dual relationship. Again, mm -hmm. of the personal and the professional. Uh, personal information should not be disclosed in provider-patient relationships. And this also applies um, not just in the clinical setting, but also to educators and students. Inappropriate postings can and have led to expulsion from educational programs. So I think uh, people who are big users of social media need to be very, very careful about what they uh, post because they're really, once it's out there, there is absolutely uh, no legal or other uh, constraint in terms of it being a uh, in terms of its in terms of it proliferating and being shared. Um, and we actually. And about a case, but I'll, I'll just say that we once did have an ethics case that a professor filed against four students in the program, students mm -hmm. who had gone off on field work and um, were posting about patients, about their supervisor issues, um, not sharing names, but it easily recognizable, and um, it was a problem. Now, Debbie, are there any official practice standards or guidelines regarding the use of social media? Uh, a you know, I think AOTA may have uh, a policy, and they may have a policy for volunteers, but I don't know of um, of real, you know, anything really formal otherwise. Okay. I think it's really a judgment call, and people need to be very, very careful. And while we're on the topic of technology, I'd also like to hear your insights regarding the use of telehealth um, services um, and occupational therapy. What are, you know, again, some of those ethical considerations regarding the use of telehealth? Mm -hmm. And this is another topic that we actually did an ethics advisory opinion on a while ago, and, and then we always update the advisories when we have a new code um, to make sure the citations are, are correct. Um, there is language in our code of ethics related to emerging technology. Um, and because typically there is not a lot of uh, research and not a lot of evidence. So in terms of um, risk and benefit, therapists need to be very careful when they apply it. That's true of, of technology in general. Mm -hmm. um, but telehealth, many people would say, well, it's not really emerging technology because it's been around for a while, but I think its use is getting more uh, more prevalent. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, it's been used for a long time for medical monitoring, but now when we're delving more into using it for occupational therapy, there are definitely some ethical concerns. Uh, it's, you know, it's a service model, a way of delivering services. Um, 
firstly, it, it should not be used for organizational or therapist convenience, and um, the outcomes should be close to or the mm -hmm. same as an in-person therapy session. Um, the benefit can be access, you know, people who live in rural areas who would otherwise do without therapy. Um, this could be very, very beneficial to them, uh, depending on their situation. Um, if they don't have transportation, or for instance, if someone needed a highly trained specialist like a wheelchair seating and mobility specialist, there are not so many OTs that have high-level expertise in that area. And if someone lived in a really remote place and um, the OT they were working with really didn't have that expertise, that's a case where, for instance, you could bring in um, virtually an expert and have them assist the OT with evaluating a patient and making recommendations. Because, um, you know, that equipment is, is very expensive and uh, really has to be very well thought through. So those are some examples where um, telehealth particularly could be very beneficial. I think the other thing um, that we need to think about is that OT is really a hands-on profession. And most of what we do, we do with the patient, and we're constantly making adjustments to the activity, to the positioning, to the instructions, that kind of thing. Um, so if you're in a situation where you're delivering services by telehealth in a treatment session and the virtual OT is directing um, the adaptations and modifications, it's very likely that there would need to be an individual on site with the patient to be making those changes. Um, so that, you know, brings another person into the mix. And this can raise issues of confidentiality and privacy because normally the patient would be there with the therapist in a session, just with the therapist. And it may be that if there's a family member or a caregiver or someone else with the patient who's actually carrying out the, the virtual instructions, that patient may not feel so comfortable disclosing certain things with a third party there. So that's something to think about. There's also the issue of a need for encryption policies for um, records, for audio and video storage, and other safeguards, you know, similar to what we have for medical records now, but obviously when you're using this kind of technology, it's, it's, um, there, there are additional um, policies that may be needed to keep it um, safe and ensure that it's only accessed by people who have a need to know. Um, something else we need to think about is competency to use and troubleshoot any equipment that's needed on both ends. Um, you know, technology when it works is great, um, but uh, anyone who works a lot with technology knows when it doesn't work, it's uh, it's a problem. Yes. Uh, if you're trying to, you know, have a treatment session and you have problems on either end uh, and you don't have access to immediate um, resolution, it's very difficult. Um, the other thing I want to throw out is that clients have the right to be fully informed about risks and benefits, and they also have the right to refuse treatment mm -hmm. in general in general, and, and if they're getting it by telehealth without ne negative consequences. So you really have to have a discussion with the patient if you're proposing to render treatment using telehealth and make sure that they really consent and they really understand what it's going to mean and you should probably revisit that discussion throughout the course of treatment. 
because patients can change their mind at any time, and that is their right. So they might think it sounds like a great idea because it may be convenient. They have nobody to drive them to therapy or something like that. But, you know, a few sessions in, they might think differently. They might feel like the remoteness of it is not really, is not building a therapeutic relationship. It's not giving them the benefit that they expect. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have to consider that services through telehealth can be challenging for patients with hearing, visual, cognitive, language, or literacy impairments, um, even more than if they're sitting right in front of you. And finally, keep in mind that uh, we have no national licensure. Every state has a has different license. So therapists who are providing treatment through telehealth need to be licensed in every state in which they provide services, even virtually. So if the patient's in one state and you, the therapist, are in another state, you need a license in both. And you have to meet the requirements uh, for licensure in both. Very good points. Thank you for sharing, Debbie. And we, you know, we've been alluding, or rather you have been alluding to this, um, you know, throughout our phone call, but what does a manager, specifically moving on to administration and management, what does a manager or director of rehab um, look like in today's healthcare climate? How do they model ethical behavior in today's healthcare climate? Um, In other words, what steps do they need to take um, to one, ensure uh, financial viability uh, for their company um, while also keeping clinical staff happy and engaged um, and preserving uh, the quality services that are beneficial for patients? Well, managers are in a little bit of a uh, challenging position these days. Um, healthcare is a very challenging environment. It's very much a business. It's very financially driven, and that is often at odds with um, the putting clinical judgment at the forefront of decision-making, and that's why I think therapists feel so much angst in the workplace very often, some settings more than others, but everyone is quite conscious of um, the reimbursement and financial issues driving treatment many times, and not always um, for the better of the patient. So you have to understand that managers often have financial incentives to achieve revenue targets, and this can get passed down to the treating therapist or uh, assistants. Um, So they're really in the middle. They answer to above and they answer to below. And sometimes, very often, a manager has been promoted from a clinical position. So they were one of the group, and now they are in a management position. And so there can inherently be some tension um, if they are bringing down um, decisions that appear to be very financial and business-driven when they actually are a clinician and the clinicians expect that they will understand some of the challenges of providing care in a clinical setting. So that, you know, is an inherent um, challenge. But the fact that they have their own financial incentives um, and, uh, and, you know, they have to meet financial targets and they also benefit from them can be an inherent conflict of interest. So if the manager is a clinician, uh, they need to balance the need for financial viability with benefit to the patient and prevention of harm. So that's really sort of the um, conundrum that we hear about quite a bit. They need to demonstrate that this primary concern for patient well-being 
um, and and show it to the staff. You know, they uh, and make it a priority. What the staff is looking for is a manager who understands the challenges of providing clinical treatment to real patients um, who are not, you know, assembly line widgets. And, uh, you know, it's a very, there are a lot of variables in the clinical setting. And so, and, you know, the reason the patients are there is presumably to get some benefit from their treatment. Otherwise, we have no business being in this profession and we have no business rendering care. So... Um, they have to sort of answer to two masters as a manager uh, because when they answer to senior management, of course, they're interested in the revenue targets. So so balancing that can be quite a challenge. Um, so it may entail pushing back or suggesting alternatives when the senior management directives are contrary to the patient or staff, uh, such as unrealistic productivity quotas. I mean, productivity productivity is one of the number one questions that we get at AOTA, and it's usually angst about um, productivity quotas that are impossible to meet while providing ethical or legal care. So they run counter to our code of ethics, they run counter to Medicare regulations, and so the therapists are really in, in ethical dilemmas. So that's, um, you know, in cases like that, if the clinician sees the manager just pushing what they know to be detrimental to the patients and unrealistic and not um, pushing back with um, senior management and helping them understand what is realistic and looking at alternatives so that they can meet financial goals but still provide beneficial care, then there is a problem. Um, the managers, their job is also to have a staffing model that utilizes all level of staff, the OT, the OTA, and if they have aides who, of course, cannot provide skilled care but can certainly help the OTs and OTAs be more efficient in managing their sessions, you know, set up, clean up, that kind of thing, transport. Um, so if they utilize all levels of staff efficiently within their respective scopes of practice, um, then they are uh, more likely to have more satisfaction and uh, run a better department. They also should not ask staff to do things outside their scope of practice or level um, level of competence. Because again, that's our from an ethics perspective, we're supposed to provide benefit, principle one in our code, and prevent harm, principle two. So any directive that runs counter to that is going to be problematic. Um, finally, managers need to model ethical behavior in their dealings with all levels of their organization. You know, the managers are the role models. Mm -hmm. and, and how can we create a culture that values ethics in the workplace? Um, I know we spoke to the, the idea of a lunch and learn. Can you explain a little bit about that idea? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think, first of all, ethical reasoning is a lifelong learning project. It's not something that you learn and you're done. And there are many ways to get ethics education through books, CE products, presentations, and those are a good start. Um, a lot of them are available through AOTA as well as other sources. The Lunch and Learn sessions is an easy way to have the staff get together, for instance, take a clinical vignette, a short case, and um, have the staff read it and uh, go through a systematic analysis with a framework for ethical decision-making um, so that they can arrive at a resolution that um, they can defend. In ethics, 
things are very often not black and white. Um, they can be much more ambiguous. But it's intellectually stimulating as a group, and it's a good learning experience to have people discuss what their view of a situation is. And you'd be surprised how often the um, perspectives differ. Um, because, you know, how we behave is also a function of our personal values and our cultural upbringing. So people bring very different things to the table. And so if they go through a systematic analysis, they'll be sure, number one, that they have the information they need to truly make an informed decision. Um, they've considered uh, additional information that they might need, additional people that they might need to talk to. They have looked at resources. They have come up with a variety of uh, alternatives that might address the dilemma. They have ruled out all but one or two. Um, and they make a decision that uh, to move forward and take action on one of them because otherwise you have an intellectual thinking uh, exercise. And that doesn't result in any kind of change. For change to result, um, you have to have action. And action often comes at a significant personal price, but at the end of the day, you really have to be true to your own values. And you really have to protect the patients, too. We're in healthcare. We're there for only one reason, to provide benefit to the patients and prevent harm. And they trust us um, in our therapeutic relationship to do that. So um, the, fr the framework, using the framework as, as a basis for a group discussion is a good way to stimulate the discussion and the learning. And, you know, clinical vignettes sometimes they, you can take one from your own setting. Um, someone may be troubled about something and could just bring it to a lunch and learn. Or they could take a case from uh, one of the ethics um, uh, advisory opinions. I mean, there are any number of ways to get short vignettes um, that can serve as a basis for this. So um, the framework for ethical decision making uh, that I there there are a number of them out there. They're all pretty similar. The one that I developed um, for the OT manager book, which we're updating now, uh, it's in the chapter on ethics. Um, I often use it in ethics presentations. Uh, you can also clinicians can also request ethics sessions at state conferences. It's a good way to systematically approach an ethical dilemma and arrive at a resolution that you can defend, and that is thoughtful. Most people have sort of a gut reaction when they encounter an ethical dilemma. They sort of, uh, something comes right to mind and they think that's the best thing to do. But on further reflection, um, other, there, there often are other options that they have not explored. And the final step really is to reflect on what happened. Because if you encountered that situation again, would you handle it the same way? Because maybe it didn't quite turn out the way you expected. Thank you, Debbie. And then just to speak to productivity, I know um, you know we had a chat um, about just this, the power in numbers, um, specifically with productivity. Uh, you know, getting together as a department, not only occupational therapists but physical therapists, um, and addressing the issue of productivity. Um, can you just speak to that idea of just the power in numbers and, and uh, working together as an interdisciplinary team to address some of these ethical issues? Sure. Um, and we did mention this on the Member, um, Member Plus webinar that Amy Lamb and I did on productivity as well. Very often I get calls from members and one person is really disturbed by the situation and they're the ones that pushed back. 
and sometimes they're written up or they're terminated, even if they've been a long-term employee. Um, and when they have tried to rally some of their colleagues, um, they often get pushback because people need the job, they don't want to lose the job, they have debt, they have that kind of thing. But what, what therapists need to understand is um, this is, this is re not a, just a job, this is really a profession. And, you, you know, we have to provide ethical treatment um, because we, <laughs> we are sworn to our code of ethics. And we answer really to a higher calling because we are a profession. If you have a department with PTOT, speech, maybe other um, disciplines, they're all under the same productivity requirements. They're all in the same situation. So instead of one therapist sort of putting themselves out there and bearing consequences that may be really negative, if the group banded together, it's highly unlikely that an employer would fire 10 or 15 people. So we have really tried to stress teamwork and um, really helping older, you know, more experienced therapists, helping younger therapists understand their professional obligations. Because at the end of the day, people go home and um, we all know the feeling of feeling very, feeling sort of a low-level anxiety, sort of a churning in the pit, you know, pit in the stomach kind of thing when you know that what you're doing is not the right thing because the patients are not getting benefit. In fact, the, in, if you work in a SNF, the patients are frail and elderly. They may actually be harmed, um, but they're very often not getting better because they're not getting individualized care. So we, we have an obligation, ethical obligation to our patients. And I think that we can say we can have more success if we work with employers as a group and think about alternatives to these unrealistic productivity standards, perhaps do time studies, think about some of the um, quality measures that facilities and organizations now have to report. Many of them relate to the kinds of interventions that we identify in our OT plans of care. So this is a way that OTs can help uh, employers meet the um, uh, quality measures that they need to report um, and so can benefit them. So I think there are ways to turn things around um, and really uh, work with employers and uh, work in a more satisfying workplace. And of course, the byproduct is also, which should be the primary concern, that the patients are actually getting the care that they need. So I think that's those are some strategies that people um, should try. Um, because they also need to remember that if they're doing unethical and illegal things because they're getting administrative directives to do it and they get audited by Medicare or they have a SWAT team which Medicare is, is quite aware of some of the things that's going that are going on that is going on uh, in some facilities um, they're part of the problem if they're knowingly doing illegal uh, things that run counter to Medicare regulations. And there have been OTs who have been uh, faced the criminal felony charges and have been imprisoned and have had significant fines. So um, it's not just a question of, you know, my supervisor told me to do it, I have to do it, I have no, um, I have no alternative. There are alternatives. And the other thing is finally, they, therapists may need to think about reporting. 
if they have tried to bring about change and they haven't been successful and or seeking another job. It's very difficult to go into work every day in those kinds of um, environments. And Debbie, how can people report um, sort of ethical challenges that they may see on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, we have, um, if you go to the, our website and you put fraud and abuse in the search bar, there's a lot of information about reporting to the Office of the, of the Inspector General. Um, we have had meetings with the OIG and with the Department of Justice. They have done a number of investigations. They're quite well aware of some of the things that are going on, particularly in SNFs. There have been a number of settlements and major fines. Um, but, you know, the, the therapists are working at the local level. They know what's going on in their facility. They are the ones that need to report. So, uh, so you can get that reporting information on our website. As I said, just put fraud and abuse in the search bar. Um, skilled nursing facilities are licensed by the state. There are uh, state agencies um, that you can report to as well. And certainly if you're seeing unethical or illegal conduct in a supervisor who's a clinical professional, you can report them to their state licensure board as well. I should also and mention, Michael, that we have yes. um, a, pr a productivity page that has all of our resources. Um, and it has information about reporting to compliance officers. It has OIG information. It has a consensus statement developed with ASHA and APTA uh, about clinical practice and judgment. So if you just put productivity in the search bar, we have pulled all our resources together on one web page, and there is a lot of information there that I think will be helpful to people in dealing with um, practices in the workplace that are of concern. Thank you, Debbie. And are there is there an ethics mailbox that we can send maybe general questions about ethics to? Sure. Ethics at AOTA.org. Okay, great. And now for some of our members who work in pediatrics, uh, perhaps school-based practice, early intervention, how does this conversation of ethics and leadership relate to pediatrics? Are we seeing a, a rise in ethical challenges in pediatrics or school-based practice? Yes, we are actually lately. Interestingly, I mean, a lot of our questions have related to work in SNFs, uh, but now we're starting to see them in, in school-based practice. And some of the issues are the same, you know, caseload issues, um, unrealistic caseload, lack of supervision of OT assistance. Um, we hear about pressure to change documentation change um, OT recommendations to avoid litigation or due process from parents because the parents are not happy with the um, write-up of an evaluation or the, or the um, uh, recommendations of the OT. Sometimes they are unhappy that uh, the OT does not recommend therapy because they don't feel the child can benefit. In some cases, the child's had a lot of therapy and they really are not going to benefit further, and the parents want therapy. So we hear about that. Um, sometimes the, the uh, principals or administrators are uh, asking the OTs to change the documentation because they don't like language in the documentation. You, can ne you cannot change uh, documentation. Documentation, you know, it's a legal document, and um, your signature on a note attests to the accuracy of the content. 
So um, you cannot allow someone else to change it, and you should not change it unless you actually have made an error as you're writing it, in which case you need to initial it. And, and if you're done with that, um, you know, related to pediatrics, I wanted to ask just for maybe our students on the phone right now, uh, what do clinicians and students need to understand about maintaining professional boundaries in the workplace? Well, the single most important thing to understand is that the burden is always on the professional to maintain boundaries. Sometimes therapists find themselves in a situation where um, they are interested in a personal relationship with the patient or a patient is, in is interested in a personal relationship with them. Um, that can happen while they're also in a professional relationship. And, uh, you know, so the dual, the dual uh, relationship is something that can happen. Now, we do get questions periodically about, you know, how long do I have to wait till he's not my patient anymore before I can date him. And uh, there is no set um, time. Um, I think therapists need to think very carefully about the potential ramifications of um, blurring lines uh, in, and professional boundaries. Uh, one of the reasons that you don't have a professional boundary, uh, one of the reasons that you don't have a personal and professional relationship at the same time is because it can mar your objectivity. Um, it's a conflict of interest. You have to be able to always be objective in uh, your recommendations with the patient and the treatment. And if you're also in a personal relationship, that could be skewed. Um, the dating the patient, uh, keep in mind that you know a lot more about that patient than you typically would. And then you move into a personal relationship. Um, uh, you know, if things don't go well, um, I always say, you know, particularly if, if you're in a mental health setting where people are maybe particularly vulnerable, especially young people, it may be even more problematic. But really in any setting, I mean, you have access to information about that patient that you would not know typically when you just meet someone in a dating situation until you're much further along in a you know, in the relationship. And if the relationship, you know, if you end up breaking up and it, or it doesn't go well, um, you know, patients are vulnerable, so you really have to think about potential harm as well. That being said, there obviously are therapists who have uh, at some point dated and or married former patients, um, but they certainly should not start dating till um, that professional relationship has ended. And Debbie, this is sort of a, a question um, I know we talked about last time as well, but for, for those who have an OTA as their director of rehab, um, who is responsible for supervising that OTA? Well, you, as you know, OTAs always have to be clinical, clinically supervised by an OT. Yes. Um, one of the challenges that comes about is that most OT assistants who are in a management or director of rehab position are also treating patients. They're usually not 100% um, administrative. And so as an administrator, of course, they can oversee different disciplines and they don't need supervision. But once they start treating patients, an OT has to clinically supervise them and technically delegate treatment to them, um, in some cases co-sign their clinical notes, 
so this is also the OT um, that the OT assistant may be doing performance evaluations on, because again, in their other, wearing their other hat, they're a manager. Um, so you can see where the conflict, conflicts of interest can arise. Um, I think, you know, ideally, uh, the OTA who is treating patients should have a clinical OT supervisor who is either an outside supervisor or someone who they are not also going to be uh, evaluating as an employee. That keeps it a little bit cleaner, but it's very tricky because you know staffing is tight in um, in facilities, and uh, you know it's it's um, it's pretty tough. But we did actually write an ethics advisory opinion on just this issue because it is so common, especially in SNFs, skilled nursing facilities. Very often, OTAs are in management positions, and they have OTs under them administratively. Um, but again, they need clinical supervision. Is there a reason for that trend in skilled nursing facilities? They're less expensive. Okay. To be perfectly direct. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Debbie, um, are there any final messages or thoughts you would like to share with members and listeners um, to take home about ethics in general or how it relates to leadership? I think I would say um, that leaders need to uh, understand that they set the tone for the department or the organization. Um, it's important that they walk the walk, not just talk. Their behavior should be consistent with core values and our ethical principles. Um, what actually happens is what determines the culture in an organization, not what's in policy and procedure manuals. So um, it's very important that you, uh, an organization does not have a, a very ethical-looking policies and procedures, but what actually happens in the day-to-day -day is the antithesis of that. Um, so I think that's very important. You know, leaders need you model. You know, it's it sort of models from the top, um, and um, as I said, they set the tone. So they set it by their behavior and what they say and what they do, and it all needs to be very consistent. Um, ethical principles should guide organizational decisions without exception. That, you know, really seems idealistic, but that is really the most important thing. Thank you, Debbie. And is there anything else before we sign off, Debbie, you'd like to share? I don't think so. If there are any questions, I'm happy to answer them. I don't see any questions on the talk show, the chat box, or Twitter. Um, let me just refresh the page here. No, on Twitter. Look... Nothing on Twitter. Say... I know for sure. Were there any questions on Twitter, Bill? Nope. Okay. All right. Well, then at this time, I'd like to thank our guest, Deborah Slater, uh, for participating and joining us. Um, tonight, and on behalf of our audience members and community of leaders, we thank you, Deborah, um, for all of your contributions to the profession and for supporting the leadership development of our AOTA members. You're very welcome. Thank you, Deborah, and you have a good night. Th thank you, everyone thank you. listening. Take care. Bye bye. Bye.